hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm recording today from the Autism Health Summit 2024 in San Antonio. Make sure you look that up online. Uh, many great presentations, new understandings regarding autism spectrum disorder. Our interview today is on a related topic, and that is the sociology of pressure, coercion, censorship, and what happened on college campuses with the mass vaccination program. Our guest today is Dr. Claudia Chauvin, university professor, Toronto, Ontario. Terrific interview. It's a long format interview, so uh, I'll end the monologue here and we'll get on with the program. But I can tell you, you are going to be amazed at the rigorous evaluation that Dr. Chauvin has done and the conclusions she's drawn regarding the impact of mass vaccination on our university students. And it's a great pleasure to have on the other side of the microphone, the other side of the, the, the continent, really, Dr. Claudia Chauvin. Uh, Dr. Chauvin is an academic researcher in uh, the Toronto metro area. She lives in the province of Ontario. And uh, she has several papers that are published in the peer-reviewed literature, fully accepted and uh, published. And I want her to discuss them uh, as they help us understand what's happened through the pandemic. And uh, they interface really in an interesting way between you know, clinical medicine, uh, public policy, and really sociological phenomena in the population. Dr. Chauvin, welcome to the McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse Substack. Thank you very much, Peter. It's my pleasure to be here. Why don't we start out by you know having you introduce yourself and and tell us why you got interested in 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 the pandemic? Well, <laughs> it hit us all over the head. Just very briefly, I um, I grew up in Argentina. That's where I went to medical school. Uh, I have the honor to have gone to the same medical school as Hector Carvalho, although uh, Hector, uh, who is also uh, you know an important figure in the movement and. Uh, uh, but I had a brief uh, medical career. I was working in a clinical service uh, with uh, diabetic patients, uh, patients with diabetes, obesity, and some eating disorders. I was a clinician. And I also did on the side a little bit of medical writing. So I had trained through a scholarship in, you know, medical writing. And I was, uh, you know, very enthusiastic and, and you know, quite successful with my job, although my native country was always uh, problematic, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. But anyway, I was, you know, I had a, you know, relatively successful career. Um, in my mid-30s, I uh, took off for an adventure. I went to North America, to the USA. I wanted to train further in medical and scientific writing. And long story short, it uh, turned into a life uh, change. I ended up doing a, a PhD, a doctoral program in, in sociology, medical sociology, social theory, uh, some bioethics on the side. And uh, it really transformed my life. And um, 
So I transitioned to an academic career. I never relicensed to practice medicine again. It was a bit of a loss, but that was the choice I made. And um, in 2015, I was lucky to get a Fulbright. I was a Fulbright scholar and wow. landed in in uh, in Canada uh, in a university. And I really, really liked the 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 environment I had. It, w- it was a little bit of less research, more teaching. I was more exposed to young people in a as an educator. I really enjoyed it. I spent a, a, a year that was a very productive year, also on the research front. And uh, I was also very fortunate to be able to compete and, and gain a tenure at the same university uh, a little bit later. So here I am. I've been in Canada for about seven years. Wow, that's tremendous. And I'm also married to a Canadian. I'm I, I both, you know, uh, Argentinian-American, so I have both. We, we both have we're kind of international uh, family. I'm a, I'm a hybrid. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew <laughs> there had to be a, a man involved, a spouse, and uh, and there you are, you're in Canada. But, you know, uh, Dr. Chauvin is an MD, a PhD, so she has a clinical background, also has a very important background in sociology, which is the study of of, of people and groups and, and how people interact uh, with one another. And um, your papers caught my attention. And uh, and one of the first ones I want to discuss is a, a paper uh, that deals with uh, vaccine hesitancy and rebalancing the risk-benefit relationships. So can you build that out for us a bit sure. about this paper? Absolutely. Well, let me give you just a little bit of introduction because, uh, frankly, I was hit over the head by COVID as everyone else. But I didn't get it, and I didn't get it for quite some time. It took me about a year because I was so far from the clinic, from clinical practice and clinical knowledge that I, I was looking at, uh, you know, a side interest of mine is, you know, geopolitics and, you know, big stuff in the world, et cetera. I was looking at the dynamics of COVID as it uh, shaped relationships between countries, and I was particularly concerned and very taken by what, the, what is called, you know, the new Cold War between big powers, right, the U.S. and China and so on. I wasn't looking. I was really, really relying on uh, the authorities and uh, on doctors who surrounded me. And that was uh, transformed. Uh, I have to say this, uh, Peter, when I came across uh, your paper, I have it here. I keep it to this day. Multifaceted, highly targeted sequential multidrug treatment Etc. It was sent by me by a friend, by a colleague, a friend in the USA, who is not a clinician but a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist, no less. And he said, "You got to write, read this paper." And I said, "Okay." And I was so busy, uh, you know, trying to survive in teaching online, which was very stressful, mm-hmm. uh, until I finally got a chance to read it, and I thought, "Oh my God, what have I been missing?" And uh, then I came across the protocol developed by the FLCCC. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as they say, the rest is history. And uh, I became part of the uh, an organization that you also helped uh, spawn and foster, the Canadian COVID Care Alliance. I was desperate mm-hmm. to reach out and gain understanding. So as a sociologist, I, I, I have been doing a little bit of medical research on some topics that I'm interested in uh, autoimmune disorders, and I've we've published a, 
uh, a, a protocol, a scope and review, but but largely I'm interested in these sociological processes because I was, and I still remain, blown away by the way in which this event uh, took over the world and shaped, you know, people's, you know, thinking about things and usual practices of respect and and, and freedom, you know, I'm very, you know, I would say liberal, but like extreme <laughs> to the left. And all of a sudden, I saw people I had never imagined, like throw out uh, completely, you know, respect for individuals and freedom and the censorship, etc. So that's how I began uh, to develop this strong interest. And I had to put it down on paper, which is what I know how to do. And that's mm-hmm. how this vaccine paper came about and I chose a strategy that was kind of medical and standard, Mm -hmm. which is doing an umbrella review, looking at all the systematic reviews and how they framed what they think of as the problem of vaccine hesitancy, right? So I did a critical analysis of that literature with a small group of people I trained Mm -hmm. and we reviewed about 50 uh, papers after the usual process of doing a systematic review of the literature, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I found that, uh, well, the assumptions were essentially false, right? The, the This whole problem presented to the world as a problem to solve just did not have a scientific leg to stand on. And, uh, but that was after I had already done an inquiry into the academic literature on, again, what I think of the pseudo-problem, but i that was my opinion, I had to show it, of uh, vaccine uptake among university students, because I'm in a university, so that's the environment I am exposed to. And uh, I found the same, you know, essentially the same thing. They were all desperate trying to uh, get the vaccines to the students who I had developed already a pretty solid, thanks to your work, uh, Peter, frankly, I listen to the podcast and i i'm eager to learn my to remember my my medical and learn new stuff and uh so i came across information that was simply not true it was just simply not not true and so i did this critical analysis of the pseudo problem of vaccine hesitancy among university students i did interviews of students to find how they were experiencing this whole uh this whole um, enterprise of, 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 of pushing them toward medical intervention without, uh, uh, you know, enough information or even false information and so on and so forth. So, uh, and I found very interesting responses, a variety of things, because of course the kids are young and they respect their authorities and so on. And then came as a third paper of that series, the, the systematic review on the balance of risk and benefits in the vaccine hesitancy literature. Well, I'm sorry, it's a long answer for, a, for, you know, it's a kind of a long answer, but yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about not assumptions, but presumptions. So to presume something is to, in a, say, in a sense, you know, state what one thinks is reality or wishes t- to be reality uh, or truth. And then from that point in time, pursue it. So the presumption was that the vaccines were safe and effective. So therefore, hesitancy to a vaccine would be a bad thing. Acceptance of a vaccine would be a good thing. Did you find that the literature was just loaded with this presumption? 
It was, as a matter of fact. And and of course, even then I would because my my you know, my thinking has evolved. I was um I've become, you know, very, very strong. Uh, you know, if anything else, individuals have the right to make their own medical decisions, period. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't even matter because when you read you're as more familiar than me, even, but you know, the Nuremberg Code, etc., it doesn't really matter. If, if, if I'm wrong about my decision, it's my decision, period. Mm-hmm. End of the conversation. So uh, it could be a good idea, but that's okay. You have the right to pass on a good idea, right? It's ultimately your life. So well, the, well, assum- the presumptions were all, the, the, there was a deep presumption that there was no legitimate reason to hesitate about okay. taking the vaccine. Okay. And of course, the presumption is false. I mean, the medical literature is flooded with counter evidence. Okay, but but early on, we didn't know. And as a scientist, <clears throat> shouldn't the scientific method of hypothesis testing be set up like this, where the null hypothesis is the vaccines don't have an effect. They don't work one way or the other. Uh, they just don't work. And the alternative hypothesis is th- that they work. And in uh, hypothesis testing, we would start out and say, listen, we don't know. We, we simply don't know. The null hypothesis is, you, you know, they don't work. We, we can give them a try. But shouldn't the presumption have been that they don't work or we don't know where we're, we have ambivalence? And an alternative hypothesis is that we we have a direction either you know let's say safe and effective or that's or right now you want could yeah i i completely agree with you peter i now one could set things the other way and but of course i mean the real way to use it it, it it doesn't work and now we have to try it now thankfully i have to say thankfully because i would not have survived by myself without you know brilliant people around me mm-hmm. and i'm part of the scientific and medical advisory committee of the canadian covid care alliance the ccca mm-hmm. And I listen to, you know, I, I, I get a, the opportunity to listen to a lot of people who uh, who said the obvious, you should need, you should read the papers, the original papers. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I, so I learned like very early on, it was already well determined that the vaccines weren't even tested for that which they allege they could do, I, right? I Transmission and effect is so... Even that, it wasn't that it wasn't known. In other words, I, with my sociological uh, eagerness and curiosity, I, 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 I learned, I reconstructed the history of what was told to us, and we were allowed to know the public, like the little people, right? But yes, but, you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But Claudio, uh, uh, Peter Hotez, who's a vaccine developer in Houston, <laughs> Texas, at Texas Children's. Yes, he uses the word science and anti-science, and. I think he's actually transposed things. You know, the scientific right. method, again, would say the null hypothesis, we simply don't know, it's too early. Alternative hypothesis is, uh, let's say that they are effective or they're, you, you know, right. they're unsafe or, you know, it's something other than the null. He's reversed it and started out by saying, they work. They've always worked. We've always known they were going to work. And so anybody who rejects that is quote anti-science. How, how would you respond to that? Well, uh, I would respond that thankfully, as a well, you know, pretty well trained uh, sociologist, 
I've studied the sociology of deviance, stigma, uh, the tradition of medicalization and social control. And these are all sort of, you know, jargon, right? But, but essentially what it means is using discourse and language to exert control over people without having to provide evidence. So you can sort of, you know, how to manipulate, perhaps intentionally, perhaps unintentionally, but how to exert power over people. So the tradition of medicalization alert us to the danger of allowing concepts to acquire inordinate power. For instance, the concept of health. If I say that I'm doing something for your own good and to improve your health, I gain a lot of power if I gain your trust mm -hmm. or the trust of independent observers. So uh, I would say that those kinds of attitudes raise m way more a flag, a red flag in me than the medical stuff that I wasn't familiar with, right? For instance, I realized over the, over the course of my learning that I had missed a lot of things that, geez, I should have known. I mean, I should have known about infectious disease, the relationship between, you know, host environment and agent, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, natural immunity, I had completely missed them. And thankfully, I've picked them up quite solidly, thanks to reading voraciously from people who know. Uh, but the discursive strategies of shaming and uh, stigmatization and shutting off dissent, those weren't lost on me. So the moment I began to pay attention, I thought, this is not good. It doesn't smell well, right? When you disagree, you provide an argument. You don't throw uh, a term of abuse over people's head. Mm. There's something wrong here. So, uh, but of course, that in itself is not an argument. If I want to write about these things, I have to argue for them. So the way I would respond is essentially, give me your argument, right? Stop demonizing, stop throwing epithets and... Uh, using abusive words. That's not the way to persuade people. It's not scientific. It's not intellectual. It's anti-intellectual. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it's a clear, uh, I think, power dynamic, right? So uh, Peter Hotez, what he's implying is he holds science. And if someone doesn't adopt his views that they're anti-science, and no one wants to view themselves as anti-science in our field. But what would drive somebody to want to use those power dynamic uh, tactics? Why not just discuss the information? Well, that's the million dollar question. I'm still wrapping up my wrapping my head around how and why. And I was listening to a podcast today, someone saying, well, it's hard to think that the pursuit of profit can go as far as being pursued at the expense of so much harm. But you know what? That's what we observe, right? There's a lot of money involved. Uh, and as you frequently that have pointed out, the medical system has been extremely corrupted by money. And, you know, I've also studied, you know, there's a tradition of literature within sociology, social psychology called the social psychology of power. And there's some classic experiments done, and it kind of teaches people that given the right situation, you know, even the best person can do bad things. You can persuade. Wow. Now, if one is self-aware of these processes, you can pull yourself out. I believe mm -hmm. in agency, ultimately. 
but in fact, I'm teaching this like this this uh, week. We're going to have a a, a class uh, on, on the concept of power, how how power, social power, right? How social power mm -hmm. operates. So the more aware one is of the workings of power, the more you can sort of detach yourself from wow. from these sort of manipulations. Right. But the question that you're asking, Peter, is a very valid one, and I. I can't find an alternative to, you know, just the, you know, pursuit of money. They do it because they can. <laughs> they do it because they can. Well, let me ask you another question regarding this first paper that I quoted. You've used a term called engines of medicalization. Engines of medicalization. What do you mean by that? Well... Engines of medicalization is a concept coined by a fellow by the name of Peter Conrad, Professor Conrad, and I um, can't remember what U.S. university is, but uh, he's one of the people I looked up to when I was training as a sociologist in the field of the sociology of health and illness. And he said that medicalization happens when we begin to think about, you know, the variety of values in life and good things in life or bad things in life as health issues. So you have friendships, that's good for your health. You, you know, <laughs> you do good stuff and that it improves your health. Well, perhaps okay. it does, but it's not that health overrides every other value, putting it so high, right? You might, you might, for instance, when the, the lockdowns, et cetera, oh, we'll protect your health. Well, I really want to see my children. I don't care about my health, even if my mm -hmm. health was in danger. I want to see my children. That's more important to me than live one more day, assuming that that was the case, which it wasn't. So Peter Conrad says there's a range of social institutions in society that drive the process of medicalization. Traditionally, it was doctors, traditionally, the medical profession, and then, for instance, you know, medical journals, etc. But there could be medicalization without doctors just by people embracing that the concept of health or somehow being persuaded is more important than other things and framing their problems as, as medical. So he has an interesting book called From Badness to Sickness, and it traces the history. I teach also a little bit of the history of medicine and some, so the, the cases in medical history where things that were seen as you know bad or evil were evolved over time uh, to be seen as medical problems, right? So, for instance, he studies the witches of Salem, mm -hmm. for instance, right? You know, homosexuality and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and we're first evil and then, you know, then medical and mental health problem. And now it's just a behavior, right? A way of being in the world. So, uh, so I observe that things. And these are the engines. Now, I personally... Um, thought or I gained the insight that academia, and I don't mean academia medical schools, which would be more understandable, but the environment I'm in is another engine of medicalization when academics produce the discourses that drive the COVID event, right? So we are all, I mean, we, I, I try to stay out, but we are contributing because academics have also done, unfortunately, I have to say their part in helping perpetrate the dominant narrative. And they have a lot of power, respect, you know, respectability. So it's sad. It, it sounds like your point, though, is this isn't new. This goes back. You can pick examples in history, right? 
Absolutely. I actually go in my courses. I'm teaching now a class, second year course in health policy. And, you know, the first case we study is the case of tobacco because it's a it's a showcase of all the sort of the propaganda strategies of persuasion, et cetera, medical malfeasance, et cetera. But then I go over other cases, for instance, uh, thalidomide, right? So, uh, and, 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 and the ways in which, you know, the problems of you know, pregnancy, you have a headache or this or that, oh, you need a pill. And the pill was thalidomide, et cetera, et cetera. Wow, this is fascinating. You know what? As we're talking, I kind of wish I was a student at one of your classes. I hope everybody, oh <laughs> young people in the Toronto metro area, uh, Ontario, uh, Western Ontario, I, uh, look, look, look for these. These are the types of classes that people take in graduate school that are so interesting. Um, it's fascinating. I want to move on to the second paper, uh, <clears throat> which I jotted some notes down, and. Um, uh, uh, it has to do with um, COVID-19 vaccine policy in in secondary education. So this secondary education, in the United States, we would think secondary education being uh, you know, junior high school and high school. I think Canada, it's a little bit different, probably Argentina. Post-secondary. Post it's in post-secondary. Oh, post-secondary. Post so that would yeah. be post-secondary would be, uh, a you know, college level, university level, right? Right. And they don't okay. use the word college here. They use university, as okay. we do, for instance, in Argentina. And you have, you know, tertiary education, too. So I chose the term post-secondary to embrace anything that comes after high school. Oh, OK. So we've covered that. That was kind of your, your survey or focus group with the yes. uh, students. Yes. OK, then the third one. Uh, this one is the one I really wanted to make sure we have plenty of time for. And uh, the, the title here is. What do experts mean by misinformation in COVID? And you present something very interesting called the Arsky-O'Malley framework. Why don't you unpack that for us? Well, the Arsky-O'Malley framework is simply a framework to do a scoping reviews. Okay. It tells you the procedures. It's like a systematic review. Uh, you know, you vote, you say, okay, I'm going to use Cochrane, right? But this is a a framework that is very respected. There, there may be others, but, you know, why fight over that one, right? Uh, that allows you to do uh, a very good unbiased, relatively unbiased, because, you know, at the end of the day, there's always the eye of the right. researcher making choices, uh, selection of papers to analyze critically on the topic of misinformation, which... You probably know uh, it is a medical term now because it is identified as such in the National Library of Medicine. It is a medical subject heading. I was blown away. I didn't thought I, I never came across the term misinformation in medical school. I thought, am I so old? Well, there wasn't such a thing. I mean, it's bad information or false information, but all this stuff about intentionality and so on, I had no idea. And of course, it is one of those, in my opinion, my modest opinion, discursive instruments of manipulating the public narrative and the public discourse. So I thought, I got to do something. <laughs> what can I do? I'm going to write a paper. <laughs> Nobody will read it. That's okay. So no, I, no, I, well, I, I published the <laughs> protocol. We are actually writing 
like with the vaccine hesitancy, we are actually now in the middle of, I have a team of four, uh, three young people and myself, and uh, we're, uh, you know, extracting data around certain questions, you know, what do they mean by misinformation? Where is their evidence? And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? What do they propose uh, to resolve the problem of misinformation? But it's a critical analysis. So we will present it in critical ways. So Claudia, don't Claudia, think that we, has Claudia, we have to take a break now. I'm going to ask you to come up for air just for a second for our sponsors. We've been talking to Dr. Claudia Chauvin, who's a professor at a major university in the Toronto metro area. She's both an MD and a PhD and a sociologist. And we're having a fascinating uh, conversation really about the sociological aspects of the pandemic and moving into misinformation. Let's take a break now just for a second. You're listening to The McCullough Report. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Who's got time for a nasal invasion messing up your lifestyle? Crush those nasties before they become a problem. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order with the coupon code OUTLOUD, you'll receive 20% off the entire purchase. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop. That's AmericaOutloud.shop and use coupon code OUTLOUD. Use CoFixRx because it works. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Make sure you go to our website and check the banner bars. The banner bars to the sponsors, when you click on them, automatically give you a discount on products. I like especially Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement for a great night's sleep. I took it last night. No wonder I feel so good today. Check out Healthy Cell and go to our website, Banner Bar, to get a discount off your first purchase. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order, risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Out loud. When God, through his grace and mercy, gave us free will, the will of the people was to live freely. To that end, we fight for the liberty of all at a time when global tyranny threatens us as never before in mankind's history. This vision is manifest at AmericaOutloud.news, a site for all who cherish free will and freedom. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have with us Dr. Claudia Chauvin, a wonderful um, you know, clinician, sociologist, intellectual, historian. And uh, we've just started to talk about the really hot button, a new, in a sense, index term in the National Library of Medicine, that is misinformation. What did you find in your research so far about misinformation? Well, just a brief correction. I'm not a historian. I would love to be. I'm embarrassed, but I'm a history nerd. And I just, you know, I I, I devour the history. I love it because it's interesting how much we forget that was already known and how much you learn just simply by going to the past. I that's one of the reasons I enjoy, you know, your Substack and also John's, your colleague, uh, who also is digging some little historical thing and gives me a lot of material even for my teaching. But, well, what I have found is very similar to vaccine hesitancy, but I put it in a continuum. And I've done that in another publication that should be coming in a couple of months. It's a, in, the, in, the, in the form of a book chapter. Uh, that there is kind of a continuum of words that have been deployed to control the COVID event and the dominant narrative around COVID. And the ones I have identified are vaccine hesitancy, misinformation, and anti-vaxxer. So I've done an analysis of it. it, it, I wish I could do something more practical because, you know, like treating people. But, you know, words are fascinating because they have so much power. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there is a, they exist in a continuum, right? So the misinformation is the basis of, of the concern of the people who push this narrative because it drives the vaccine hesitancy, right? That they're so concerned about because the moment people say, hey, wait a minute, I, I want to take a look at this. Mm -mm, then the whole enterprise uh, collapses. And, and then, of course, that uh, misinformation, who produces it? Well, sometimes people who don't know, but then there's the bad guys, and those are the anti-vaxxers. So that's another interesting linguistic turn, because you can't, it, apparently you can't say anything about not just COVID, but any vaccine, which of course I had never thought about them until now, right? I myself have been studying the history of vaccines very, very much. Things that I never, never learned in medical school. And uh, so the, what I have found is this sort of continuum in the, in the, the of, 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 of elements that control the, the narrative. And not only misinformation, but also infodemic is also a medical subject heading. So in the same way that you used to go and see, okay, let me know about, let me see about cancer, diabetes, and you use a medical mm -hmm. subject heading to get papers on particular things. Now you do misinformation since 2022. Oh, since 2022. It's So it's a mesh term, medical subject it's a mesh term. heading. It's a mesh term together with infodemics since 2022. Okay. Well, can, can I tell you, uh, I had to... Um, uh, you know, I personally, I've actually been uh, formally charged with, quote, spreading misinformation, like one would spread, uh, uh, you know, leprosy. And uh, so I actually had to research misinformation myself. This is my brief uh, elevator uh, comment on misinformation. Misinformation appeared in the English literature around 1500. 
it was used extensively during Nazi Germany uh, by the Office of Propaganda by Goebbels. Uh, so anyone who disagreed with the Nazi regime uh, was accused of uh, spreading misinformation. And then in 2018, Washington Post indicated that it was word of the year in 2018. It's before the pandemic because it was used so successfully in partisan politics. Now by 2022, you indicate now it's a mesh term. So if you do a PubMed search, misinformation is a a, a search term. And you know, all the major universities now are having uh, major conferences on misinformation. The WHO has just said uh, that the biggest threat to world health is misinformation. The American Board of Internal Medicine says its number one task is not to cure cancer, not to cure heart disease, but to actually stomp out misinformation. Uh, tell us what's going on. I wish I knew, Peter. It is incredible actually the world economic forum put it first before anything else that is happening in the world as it as if there weren't enough things happening in the world these days it is incredible and the um i was going to say something i lost my train of thought uh but uh, I, I, I've been reading all these things. I came down to say it, it's, 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 it's very easy. I mean, what is misinformation, as you pointed out, is whatever doesn't align with this, uh, you know, hierarchy, with this sort of, you know, uh, feudal aristocracy, scientific mm. uh, self-labeled scientific consensus. And that's that. Now, I have to a small revelation about myself. I grew up under a military regime. Oh. In Argentina, during my youth, during my uh, when I was in high school, I was a, a, a teenager. Uh, there were many military dictatorships, but it was the most brutal one. That uh, very terrible story, etc. So uh, I know censorship and coercion. I was blown away that the same processes I would observe in what's called, you know liberal democracies. Uh, I'm still wrapping my head around trying to see the mechanisms, how the censorship and the coercion operate. Because in under military dictatorships, you get, you get obedience at point of gun. Uh, it's more complex when you can't do that. Although we have had our share in Canada too, when people who demonstrate against policies have been uh, you know, savagely attacked. But it seems to me that misinformation creeping into the, the medical literature, not in po partisan politics or not in, uh, you know, other non-clinical aspects is particularly yes. worrisome. You know, before COVID-19, my research focused on heart and kidney disease. And, yeah. uh, and I was a bit of a maverick. You know, I had proposed that the, the kidneys have control systems over the heart and, and, and vice versa. And the cardiologist would say, no, you're wrong. And the nephrologist would say, no, you're wrong. And then I would do research and, and, and we studied novel proteins. And if, if I was to propose uh, 10 years ago that the heart produced a, a, a protein and it directed the kidney uh, to perform certain actions. And we could actually harness that protein as a diagnostic test, potentially a, a therapeutic, which actually turned out to be the case. But if I proposed that, uh, and immediately the orthodoxy came out and said, Dr. McCullough, you're spreading misinformation. 
about the heart and kidneys. That's misinformation. Uh, what would happen is they actually would have shut down an entirely productive area of research. They actually would have shut down uh, diagnostics, attempts at therapeutics. They actually would have hurt humanity by the allegation of misinformation. Is it possible that the use of misinformation is actually really going to lead to indelible harms to humanity? It is. It is already. And I hope we can fight it back. What is notable about this misinformation business is that the misinformation experts, right? And there's many of them in Canada. There's a, a whole industry, misinformation industry. They don't have to be experts on anything other than misinformation. Isn't that remarkable? They don't need any subst substantive knowledge of the area that they claim misinformation oh, yeah. about. That's interesting, yeah. So how could you be a misinformation expert in, say, physics, if you aren't trained as a physicist? What can you say that is even coherent? So there's a lot of government money funding this sort of misinformation. And you, you look at the background of these people. They don't even have a basic medical degree, like myself. I can't call myself an expert, but I'm trained enough to look at the product of experts and, you know, tell one thing from the other, more or less, right? I need help. But people with absolutely no substantive expertise. So it, 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 it's, it, it's obvious to me, but it's obviously not obvious to everyone. It's obvious to people around me, but not to I everyone. I have to tell you, Claudia, I did, a, I did a, a LinkedIn search. You know, LinkedIn is kind of this professional uh, social media system. And I searched for misinformation. And I found a legion of young people who uh, their job is, you know, information technology, misinformation investigations, misinformation defense, fighting misinformation. Uh, there's now actually employment linked to this in, in large numbers. It is, it is very disturbing. It is very disturbing. I... I can only hope that uh, you know. With um, I, I frankly admire the way you you present the information to people in a non you know very matter of factly etc. Because I think that uh, you know the vast majority of people, not the extreme. You mentioned Peter Otez, but you know that's that type. That's okay. I mean, in every single human process, there's always going to be sort of extreme. So set them aside. But the vast majority of people. Uh, I, I have a, a lot of faith in in the wisdom of ordinary people, right? Uh, so uh, it's just a matter of insisting with uh, the message so long as we are allowed, because unlike in my own background, at least in countries like North America, for instance, uh, you, you still retain some freedoms, right? Although those are in danger, I think, but... Uh, there is some, you know, freedom to express yourself. So long as that is protected and we have a voice uh, and they don't, you know, ring down your Substack or your Twitter account as they did, et cetera, et cetera, because that has been very shocking to me and as no surprise, right, as to everyone else. Well, it's true, you know, uh, uh, now, you know, Rumble, one of the video sites, and a lot of us learn from these, these videos, there's everything from entertaining videos to scientific ones, news briefings. Rumble is now uh, banned 
in France and Brazil, and more countries may follow. I, I think Substack at some point in time may be disbanded or maybe purchased. In my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we describe this biopharmaceutical complex, this all-powerful cartel that's formed with the World Economic Forum at the top and dozens of NGOs and regulatory agencies. They seem to be running the table right now with respect to what's going on. And you mentioned, you know, World Economic Forum and, and misinformation. Now, I want to switch topics now because I have a rare opportunity to talk to somebody who's actually interacting with young people at the university level. And I, I just have to ask you this. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, college campuses were the place of, of protest. There were protests against uh, wars, the draft. Uh, there was the sexual revolution and, and, and the entire free to be you and me and drugs on college campuses, hallucinogens, um, Woodstock. And, and the liberalism of, of college campuses is well known. Can you explain to me how all that uh, all that liberal, um, uh, you know, individual rights types of thinking on campuses quickly dissolved in the pandemic to having young people snap in line quicker than anybody? I wish I could. I don't think I can explain it, but I have some tentative thoughts. Well, first of all, we weren't allowed on campus. Okay. So that's the best. You 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 just couldn't get together. People disconnected very quickly. Tune out. They even tune out of a class. And yeah, imagine having to be, you know, being twenty years old, three hours against a computer. You turn off the camera. That's it. You know, you'd be lucky if you keep them like you know ten minutes of a ten. That was the teaching. Mm -hmm. So the the environment was structured such that people could not connect and share experiences and uh and the the messaging was intense and constant and in my opinion this is my opinion as a result of my research because i did also uh, a paper called in the name of health and illness mm -hmm. and i interviewed a group of students i used some highfalutin jargonic sociological concept to sort of divide up the human experience of these students, why, how they had responded to the imperatives, the public health imperatives. And there was a small group of students who were very, very convinced that they didn't want the vaccine. They just didn't. And it was interesting to see how they stood their ground, but they suffered tremendously. Mm. Uh, and I, I wasn't able to capture too many because many of them were deregistered. So the very nature of the thing made it difficult for me to capture those people. And others were, they couldn't wait to get the next booster jab, et cetera. So it was very interesting to see. It's also very disturbing to me because I think I know what this is about, but uh, they don't. And I, I, I wasn't in a... In the, in, in the position of a physician telling them, you know, this is what you have to do, right? So I had to listen. I, I listened to their stories. Uh, a coercion. Uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm sorry, the, 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 the conviction, right? Many of them did it out of coercion. They really, really felt coerced. And it was very disturbing to see. But yeah, it was but, a, also coercion. But and I'm, then, su I'm surprised yeah, they didn't. 
Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm Go ahead. I'm surprised they didn't protest. I mean, the only protest I can recall is the University of Indiana early on. Uh, you know, the only worker group that actually protest as the mandates were being rolled out. It's interesting. And they, they got outside with signs and they protested was nurses in the United States. There were nurses here too. There were many yeah. nurses and they suffered tremendously. And there was a student against mandates. There was a student, a group of students against mandates. But in the same way that the powers that be prevented, uh, uh, you know, non, you know, the dissenting medical information to get through the public, they also prevented the voices of these students to get through. Wow. And they were extremely demonized in the same way as nurses, the same way as physicians. They were extremely demonized. They existed. They existed. I met some. Mm -hmm. But uh, the social cost of being a dissenter was very high. And uh, and the media went along and the authorities went along. They were extremely demonized. And also, one thing to note is that young people want to be good people. They want to be good citizens. They want to do good. So they preyed upon this idea that it's okay if you don't need it, but you do it for others. And that sold, uh, unfortunately, very well. I see. So that that's different than... Uh... I guess, previous protests, but students were usually the first to say, listen, I'm protesting. I don't want to be drafted. You know, I'm protesting. I want to, you know, have my rights to smoke marijuana or something along these lines. But, 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 but here, and, and back in those days, people, you know, could be thrown out of school. They could have their careers ruined, but they didn't care. They were young. Remember James Dean? He didn't care. He was the, he was the rebel. He, he symbolized the rebel youth. We just didn't see that at all. In fact, I saw parents of kids in college more concerned about the dangers of the vaccines than the kids themselves. I did too. Uh, the guilt tripping played a huge role. The guilt tripping played a huge role at the at the sort of psychological, social psychological level and the physical uh, constraining of people getting together. Now, of course, one could argue, well, people could have broken that. People could have broken that. People could have shown up mm -hmm. regardless. But there wasn't only the university, but you just couldn't go out in the street because you had police, you had the public health authorities, et cetera, et cetera. So this was, I've observed similar things, but never at this global scale with so much, uh, so many institutions involved, mm -hmm. seemingly with a common goal. Well, I found it interesting that there just wasn't the pushback against the vaccine. And <laughs> sadly, university students suffered myocarditis and uh, neurological problems. There's a big study from Italy. You know, about a third of people who take the vaccine have some neurologic side effects. So the kids are clearly affected. There was a, a young woman named Simone at Northwestern University. She was destroyed by the Moderna vaccine, had myocarditis needed a heart transplant at Northwestern, then died afterwards. This is well chronicled. In fact, when I went on Joe Rogan, uh, he had that vignette prepared for me. Uh, yet it, it just didn't seem to phase the college students. It didn't move the needle. Now, here we are a, a few years later, and there's a, uh, uh, there's a, you know, a, a terrorism, counterterrorism conflict in the Middle East, and you got have college campuses all over the place coming out on one side or the other. Yes. So, so yes. why is it an external conflict can move students in North America, but a direct threat to their own personal health doesn't seem to doesn't seem to you know to move them? 
You know, it's an interesting question. What just crossed my mind is that being a dissenter was also framed as being selfish and individualist. So that also is the psychological aspect of, you know, a young person who wants to be, you know, a good person and a good citizen. So not only would you do it for the common good, but if you didn't, you were selfish. And I then see. they they threw yeah. out all these epithets, you know, a right winger. And oh, my God, if I'm a right winger, a right, super, you know, all, all these words, right? they don't mean anything because you say, OK, what do you mean by white supremacists? Mm -hmm. I don't want to take the fourth shot. What does that have to do? So you have to stop and think. But the but the attack, the, uh, uh, you know, sort of the verbal uh, abuse. And sometimes it wasn't like directly but you you would see it in the literature and you would see it in the discourse, in the public discourse. I think that young people are very sensitive to that until they begin to see that they're not alone. But 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 isn't it true then uh, that uh, to carry that thought further, so if you went against these COVID vaccines, you were being individualistic. However, if you're in support of one side or the other in the Middle East, you're in a sense collectivist. You're just collect. You're just collectively with one group or the other. So isn't that potentially a a way to think about it? You know, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm kind of sort of, <laughs> but that's for another for another interview. I spend time in Palestine myself for quite some time, and I, anyway, I have ties. And uh, 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 but but it's very interesting because people who work completely sort of drawn to just following orders, they become, you know, very rebellious with these things. And it's the, these are the same people. So it's a very interesting phenomenon, and I don't have an answer to it, um, I mean, what, what, other than continuing what, what, trying to do my job as an educator. I mean, what we hear from uh, the mainstream media and you know it's in the United States it's divided into those that are staunchly right wing or staunchly left wing there seems to be no middle ground no fair balance anymore the right wing media would say that the college campuses are full of left wing people who are out supporting you know one side in the middle east and i think well geez well how come they those same people weren't out you know, pushing for their own individual rights on a potentially fatal vaccine. And and maybe you've helped us un understand that, that uh, part of it was just the inability to assemble. So actually the ability for people to assemble into a group and interact is pretty darn important. And but when not also, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, not also so the media, but the role of intellectuals. I come from a sort of tradition of thought where I think that you know, people recognize as intellectuals, like, you know, I'm a professor and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, as a class, uh, in my opinion, they've uh, perpetrated, they've deployed a lot of harm because they, they've seen it from respected figures, not just from the media, because none of the kids believes in the media, right, left or center, they more or less, so they follow social media or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But the authorities, and perhaps even public health authorities, but the doctors, the doctors and the nurses and their professors. So uh, in my opinion, it's, it's only anecdotal evidence, but the environment around me, they did not get an opportunity to think differently. Wow. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there. This has been a fascinating interview. We've been talking to Dr. Claudia Chauvin, a, a pro professor uh, in Toronto, Ontario. She's originally from Argentina. She studied in the United States, both a physician and a sociologist. I think now uh, in your, you, you know, your later years of your career, you're, you're much more of a, a sociologist and intellectual as you said, a, a closet historian, but you've really helped us understand so many of these issues. And I can't wait to have you back on the show as, as time passes uh, during the pandemic. I think maybe my co-author, John Leake, who is a historian and a uh, best-selling author, uh, John and you would be a wonderful, uh, would be a wonderful interview. Um, do you have any final words for our audience? Final words, I was alerted. <laughs> so I came a little prepared. So I guess that my final sort of thoughts, they're not final, but they're just a kind of a closing thought, is that I have a lot of confidence in and, and, and trust in the good judgment of ordinary people. So, and particularly as an educator, health policy is my sort of official thing, although I'm a sort of a, a sociologist at heart. I I I I I I have the, the belief, I have the trust or the confidence that if you walk people slowly and offer them a variety of perspectives, which is what I do in class, uh, they can make good choices uh, if they get the option to choose for themselves and to think for themselves. They just need to be exposed to very contrasting perspectives. And you don't need to tell them what to think. You need to just let them decide. And I have confidence that you know, eventually uh, they will come to a place where, you know, the same what I found when I came across your work, Peter. Well, with those hopeful thoughts, uh, we're going to end the interview here. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Peter. My pleasure and honor. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio.